Um, if if you uh, are going to clap, you just got to commit to it. You can't <laughs> can't like half <laughs> clap or don't. Hey, how's everybody doing? Good. Uh, real quick before I praise the Lord be with us as we preach the word, just one more thing I want to point out, celebrate. It's, it's Pastor John's birthday today. So I just want to praise God for that. How old are you today? 33 today. Uh, so uh, we're going to praise God for that. We're so grateful for you, bro. I mean, everybody is. Um, pray the Lord to give you many more years, man. We're grateful you give your time and energy to us, for real. Um, and also, Kathy Self's birthday is today. It's Tyler's birthday today. We just want to praise God for that. And I'm going to pray, and we'll get into God's word. Uh, Father, we come before you in Jesus' name, Lord, and we, we thank you again for your word. We thank you uh, for giving yourself to us, Lord. Uh, we thank you for being the satisfier of our souls, Lord, and we thank you for, yeah, for even paying any attention to us at all. It, it's incredible that you care about us and what we're doing. You go to such great lengths to communicate to us, even though we're so different from you, so far from you, Father, that um, you have to come way down to our level, God, even to the point of putting on human flesh. Lord, we thank you for loving us enough to speak to us and to provide for us, God. We pray you speak to us in your word now. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Um, so similar to last week, uh, we're going to continue in First Thessalonians. And like last week, I want to talk to you about your future again. First uh, Thessalonians is so much about not just what's going on in our lives right now. Uh, and then not even just what's happened in the past, but also what's going to happen in the future based on what Jesus did for us. Um, and more broad than just talking about your future or even just talking about uh, our church's future or all Christians everywhere. I want to talk about a bigger future than that. I want to talk about the end of the world. I got your attention now. Uh, a few people were looking down at their phone and they looked up. I want to talk to you about the end of the world today. Um, and when we start to think about the end of the world, a lot of things start to come into our minds. I mean, there, there are whole genres of stories and books and movies about end of the world type stuff. Uh, my wife loves these kind of movies. Um, anything where, like, everybody dies, she loves that. Uh, it's like everybody has died, and it's like one dude. That's like her favorite genre. She loves death. We'll pray for her. Um, but that's like a whole genre of story. You got these Hunger Games type things where it's like the world as everybody knew it has changed. And now the only thing that's left is some teenagers who are going to save the world. There are lots of them like that. Or you have like zombie stuff. You got Walking Dead or like World War Z. Uh, one time my brother-in-law recommended this movie called Quarantine where everybody got some disease. Worst movie I've ever seen in my life. <laughs> Don't see that, please. Uh, if anybody here worked on that movie, sorry. Um, there are all kinds of these kinds of things. Planet of the Apes even. As the sickness has happened and the world as everybody knew it has, has changed dramatically. And I could go on and on and on. And I think one of the reasons why these kind of stories appeal to us and we find them interesting um, it's because it's, it's just interesting to imagine a, a kind of future world where things are very different, where it's the end of the world as we know it at least, and everything is completely changed. Um, and because when we think about the actual end of this world, um, sometimes we feel like we can only use our imagination. So these are stories that kind of captivate us and, and draw us in. 
Um, and in this book, uh, the Bible, uh, this is not only a collection of different kinds of books, but it is one book and it's one story. And uh, in this story, it does tell us how the world will end. It tells us about the end of the world. And we don't consider this just another book written by some men with some imaginations. We consider this book to be uh, carried along and inspired and given to us by God himself so that when this book makes claims about what's going to happen in the future, we believe those claims to be true because God is speaking. If my friend or some author was telling about the end of the world, then I'd take it with a grain of salt. When God himself who created the world and knows all things tells me about it, I want to listen to it closely. So the text we're going to look at today talks about the end of the world. And, you know, one of the things is, um, here's where it gets strange, is when we imagine a weird future, we'd be like, oh, man, if I was a zombie, I wouldn't run like the slow walking dead zombies. I'm athletic. I ran track, so I would still be kind of fast or whatever. But when we start to think about the actual end of the world, and when we know for sure what's going to happen, it's hard to think about what to do in the meantime. Like with some of our future plans, like sometimes we like to have five-year plans or 10-year plans. And based on what we want to do, we want to make wise decisions now, right? So it's like, man, I want to be a healthcare professional. That means I need to get this degree, I need this degree, I need to get this kind of fellowship, I need to do these kinds of things to make it to that place. When we start to talk about Jesus coming back, how do we plan for that? What, what are we supposed to do in the meantime? Because, you know, no matter what I do, Jesus is coming back. There's nothing that I'm going to do to change that. And there's not much that I can do that's going to change when he comes back or how he comes back. Jesus is coming back. So my question is, what is it that we're supposed to do in the meantime? What does God want us to do? Are we just supposed to wait? Is there a particular bus stop he's going to be at? We just need to wait at? Uh, should we just quit our job? Like Jesus is going to come back, burn us up anyway, so I'm going to just quit until he comes back. What, what is it that God would have us do, uh, and the main thing that I want to drive home is this, how we should think about this. Um, uh, if you're waiting for the king to return, then you'll be ready when he shows up. We think about how we should think about Jesus coming back. Should we be afraid? What should we do in the meantime? I think the main point of this passage we're going to read is this. If you're waiting for the king, you'll be ready when he shows up. So let's read what Paul has to say to these Christians about the end of the world at least as we know it, um, 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. And I'm going to start reading at verse 1. Remember last week he's, he's uh, talking to them about what will happen to the, the other Christians who've already died, and when Jesus comes back, are they going to miss out on some of what Jesus has for us? He says, no, Jesus is coming back. We're going to delegation to meet him in the air and to welcome him. We'll be with him forever. And then he continues on, uh, 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. This is God's word. Paul writes, about the times and the seasons, brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. When they say peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. We'll stop there for now. Again, if you're waiting for the king, you'll be ready when he shows up. First thing that we need to do in thinking about the end of the world, Jesus coming back, number one, forget the date. Forget about the date. 
Forget about the specific day, the specific time, exactly when Jesus is coming back. Um, usually our first question, um, when there's something that we're looking forward to, like if there's something great we hear about, our first question is, when? Like, when can I get that? That's our natural reflex. You know, if you hear your favorite artist is going to drop a new album, your first question is when. Anytime I hear about somebody dropping a new album, I'm Googling, blah, blah, when they album dropping, right? <laughs> Google knows everything, and it'll tell me when the album is dropping. Or if your favorite artist is coming to town, or if you, are, if you love superhero movies like Ken, I mean, he probably knows every release date for the next 45 years. They probably consult him on what they're supposed to make. Uh, when there's something you're looking forward to, you want to know when, because you want to know when you can get that. You want to know those particulars, and that desire to know when doesn't go away when it comes to Jesus' return. People still just really, really want to know when, and from time to time, there'll be people who will gain like a following and notoriety based on predicting exactly when Jesus will come back. They'll say, Jesus is going to come back then, nobody else knows, but I know. And who knows how sincere they are, but, but what, what happens is their claims usually make people afraid and uh, obsessed with it, and their claims also make the world laugh at Christians because of the certainty they say uh, when the world is going to end. And one of the most recent examples uh, that I'm aware of is, is a radio host named Harold Camping. And, and I'll tell you a little bit about what happened. You know, I have a highly credible uh, you know, summary here from a credible source called Wikipedia. This is what it says. American Christian radio host Harold Camping stated that the rapture and judgment day would take place on May 21st, 2011. I mean, if you haven't caught that, he's wrong. Uh, and that the end of the world would take place five months later, October 21st, 2011. Camping, who was then president of the Family Radio Christian Network, claimed the Bible as his source and said, May 21 would be the date of the rapture and the day of judgment beyond the shadow of a doubt. Camping suggested it would occur at 6 p.m. local time. With the rapture sweeping the globe time zone by time zone. I don't know what passage you got that from. I don't think they had time zones then. While some of his supporters claimed that around 200 million people would be raptured. Camping had, a little uh, fine print, Camping had previously claimed the rapture would occur in September 1994, but don't worry about that. This is the most recent example I'm aware of, and, you know, I can understand why that sounds nice and convenient, right, to know exactly when it would be. For, for the, you know, when there's stuff that we don't have all the details on, when you get extra details, it feels like, a blessing. I mean, there's some stuff that the Lord hasn't told us a lot of, and it can be very uh, attractive when, when we can get some, some certainty about it. But I just want to say, when it comes to the return of Jesus, turn off that thing that wants to know the exact date and time. It's not helpful, and there's no point in trying to nail down an exact time. Listen to what Paul says again. He says about the, the times and the seasons. Brothers and sisters, you do not need anything to be written to you. Why? For you yourselves know very well that the day of the Lord will come just like a thief in the night. So, so real quick, I want to uh, address what the day of the Lord is. What does that have to do with the end of the world? Real quick, I'm going to just walk you very quickly through this theme in the Bible. We see it all throughout the Bible. The Old Testament prophets talk about this a lot, this day of the Lord. Have you, has, raise your hand if you've heard this phrase before, the day of the Lord. It's in the Bible a lot. Here's what they mean by it. 
They're referring to a time when God himself will break into human history and fix everything, right? And so it's usually talking about God doing that through judgment, but also through deliverance and restoration. So that, you know, they're talking about a day when God's going to interrupt what we're doing and make things right. Uh, Obadiah, when the prophet said, said this, he said, for the day of the Lord is near against all the nations. As you have done it, it will be done to you. What you deserve will return on your own Head, as you have drunk on my holy mountain, so all the nations will drink continually. They will drink and gulp down and be as though they had never been. But there will be a deliverance on Mount Zion, and it will be holy. The house of Jacob will dispossess those who dispossessed them. This is a good example about what a lot of these passages feel like. They feel dark and scary. I mean, they use all this scary imagery about things happening. And when these Old Testament writers bring it up, here's the thing they might be referring to some event that's happened in their lifetime or that will happen in their lifetime, right? Some other way that the Lord is going to intervene and make things right. So it could be him judging a nation and suppressing them. It could be him judging him or judging uh, Israel or delivering them. But they always say it looking forward to the ultimate day of the Lord. Does that make sense? So they'll be like, this day is coming when God will deliver us from this particular thing or judge this particular thing. But they understand that it's really pointing to this kind of final day. And then when we get to the New Testament, here's the amazing thing that happens. The New Testament writers pick up this theme and they teach us uh, that the day of the Lord is the day when Jesus will come back. That the way that God is going to break into our world and make all things right once and for all, the ultimate day of the Lord is when Jesus returns. So that this day of the Lord starts to also be referred to as the day of Christ. Jesus is going to come uh, and he's going to judge evil. He's going to excommunicate evil from the earth. No more evil at all. No more tears. No more pain. And it'll make all things right. That, that's what they're talking about when they're talking about the day of the Lord. Which I think is just an incredible concept. Because we often imagine God like off somewhere else, very cold and disinterested in what's going on here. I want you to know that God is not, like some people say, like he's a clockmaker who like made a clock and he lets it go and he just kind of sits lazily and he kind of watches what happens. Well, in the first place, God, uh, not only does he not just watch the clock, he controls every single tick. And then not only that, sometimes in very unique ways, he'll break in and he'll intervene uh, and he's promised to fix everything that's broken. Uh, C.S. Lewis compares God coming to earth and intervening in our world, he compares it to like if, uh, if Shakespeare wrote himself into one of his own plays and interacted with the character. This is God, the author of all things, not just paying attention to us, but coming to earth as a man, paying for our sins, and then coming back to get us. This is this huge theme in the Bible, this day of the Lord, right? Does that make sense? So as Paul's talking to these Thessalonians, he assumes they already know what this is. So he must have already explained it to them. He's saying, I don't need to write you about that. He says, in about times and seasons, I don't need to write you because you know Jesus is coming back like a, like a thief in the night. Um, and so he's telling them, don't worry about when. They don't need to worry, and we don't need to worry either. Here's why we don't need to worry. Number one, uh, what good would it do us to know exactly when Jesus is coming back? Uh, it's... It's not information that would help us to live better for Jesus, right? God didn't give us that information for a reason. He's told us everything that we need to know, right? This is almost like when I watch the news and they can't stop talking about Trump and they just bring up random 
details, like Trump today tied his shoelace outside. It's like, what? Why are you telling me this? This has no bearing on my life at all. It doesn't change my voting. Uh, it doesn't help me to be a better citizen. It doesn't give me any information that I need. Why is this helpful? It's, it's useless information. And God, if he knew that we needed to know exactly when Jesus was coming back in order to be faithful to him, or in order to trust him, then he would have given us that information, but he hasn't. So it's a waste of our time to chase after it because it, it, it's not going to help us in any way. So don't, please don't try to make charts and calendars and calculate. Uh, the other reason we shouldn't waste time on it is because we can't know. No matter how hard you try, not only would it not help you, but there's no way for you to actually know. It'll be a surprise. That's what it means by thief in the night. Jesus says himself, now concerning that day and hour, no one knows. Neither the angels of heaven nor the Son, except the Father alone. Jesus is even saying, I don't even know right now when I'm coming back. Uh, and so, uh, you know, talking about uh, a thief in the night, uh, raise your hand if you've ever heard that phrase, talking about Jesus coming back like a thief in the night. Um, it's one that a lot of us have heard, and it's kind of strange that the Bible would compare Jesus to a thief. But the only thing it's getting at is it's not going to be expected. It's going to come out of nowhere. Jesus again says, this is why you are also to be ready, because the Son of Man is coming at an hour you do not expect. So when we say, I, but I am the one who knows when Jesus is coming back, well, Jesus said he didn't even know. So think about what you are saying when you do that. He says like a thief in the night, which is a scary idea. I mean, if you ever had something scary catch you off guard, um, one time, uh, I mean, this is a lot of our worst nightmares, somebody breaking into our house. Um, and when me and uh, Jessica lived in D.C., someone broke into our house while we were upstairs in the house. It was really scary. Um, okay, well, uh, nobody broke into the house, but I thought somebody had broke into the house <laughs> because um, uh, we had a friend who had a key and she didn't have boundaries, right? So she, was, she didn't tell us. She just showed up and assumed we weren't there. And so I'm upstairs, uh, me and my wife upstairs in our bedroom talking, and we hear the door close. I'm like, huh. Whoever's here is in for good. They close the door. And so at this point, I'm thinking, well, I don't fight, but I'm about to. Uh, and I'm thinking, did I go overboard with all those vows about protecting my wife? All it is, wondering what I'm going to do. My heart is beating fast. I'm trying to look up MMA moves on my way down the stairs. And it's Sarah. She's like, oh, hey, I didn't know you was here. I said, I didn't know you was going to be here. Uh, leave and leave the key behind you. We had a conversation after that. But it was scary because I thought somebody had broken into my house. This is for a lot of us, one of our worst fears. And we have members of the church whose houses have been broken into. Uh, some right after their wedding or while they were on their honeymoon. I mean, it, one of the reasons it's so scary is because you're not expecting it. Nobody expects a thief. Thieves don't let you know when they're showing up. Right. And so Jesus is saying uh, it's going to be like a thief in the night. We're not going to be expecting it. Um, and, and this is what it goes on to say, verse 3. Uh, it says, when they say, peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them like labor pains on a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. You know, this is more that really scary 
imagery. So first, like a thief in the night, we're not expecting it. Now, we're talking about this sudden destruction. And this sudden destruction is the judgment of God that comes with the day of the Lord. When Jesus comes back, he will be coming back to judge. And it will sneak up on us. And some will be saying peace and security. This was like a a phrase in the Roman Empire. Like, it's all good. We've done so many things. Everything is at peace. Everybody is secure. He's saying all these people are running around talking about how safe it is, how much peace there is. It's going to sneak up on us. Or maybe just we think, hey, we live in this wealthy country. All the food we need, it's safer than it's ever been. Or, Or maybe you just think, I just got this gun. So somebody comes in, I know I can protect myself. Paul is saying, hey. There's a lot of reasons people may be saying, I'm at peace, I'm at security, and it'll still sneak up on them. And this image he uses next is, you know, like labor pains to sneak up on you unexpectedly. Anybody who uh, has either had a baby or their spouse or their friend has had a baby, you know that it's like, I know it's coming, but I don't know when. So um, my wife was pregnant with our daughter, Sailor, and we're like, man, when is Sailor going to come? And we're sitting here watching a movie, The Secret Life of Walter Mitty, that my friend told me we should watch, and so we're watching it. And then Sailor was like, I'm ready, right? And so we never finished that movie. But it came upon us suddenly, right? Yeah, unexpected. You can't time it exactly. Uh, and, and it's obviously a lot more scary than, uh, than new life because there's sudden destruction that's coming upon you. Yet people will say peace and security. Everything is good. Here, here's a question I have for you. Would you consider yourself a person who's at peace? Or would you consider yourself a peaceful person in your daily dealings? One of my questions for you is if you think you're just generally at peace, what is that peace based on? Now, what what gives you the confidence that you're at peace or that you're safe or that you're secure? Sometimes we think that locking our doors and setting alarms is all the peace we'll ever need. But I just want you to know there's good peace and there's bad peace. Uh, Bad peace is peace that's based on no actual facts. Good peace is the kind that's based on actual things that we should be confident in. Here's an example. Uh, There was this ship called the Titanic. And with this amazing ship that had all this stuff, one of their big selling points was this thing cannot crash. This thing is safe. And so people are like, man, I'm excited to go on this because it has all this amazing stuff and I'll be extremely safe. So people built this Titanic and are calling people to come on and saying peace and security, peace and security. And little do they know they'll run into this iceberg and they'll go down. Those people were at peace. Those people felt safe. That was a false sense of peace. It is very easy for us to give ourselves a false sense of peace and security or a shallow sense of peace and security. Paul's saying people will think they have it and the day of the Lord will sneak up on them like a thief in the night, sudden destruction, and they will not escape. That's the other thing about the Titanic. People felt safe. They felt at peace. Once the Titanic was going down, there was nothing they could do. People could get on some boats and hope, but there's no way to go back in time and wish you wouldn't have gone. And in the same way, he's saying when Jesus shows up as judge to make all things right, it's going to be too late. There's no escaping the justice of Jesus that's coming. 
And just one of the things I'll point out here is it is proud and foolish for us to put off trusting Jesus for even another moment. When we decide, I know I should trust Jesus, but I'll do it next week, we're saying to ourselves, peace and security, peace and security. Not only with the assumption that our lives will continue on, but that the day of the Lord won't come. You know, there may be plenty of things we're thinking, but I don't know what the signs are supposed to be. Look, Jesus is saying, it's going to sneak up on us. That's I want to encourage you. If you're putting off following Jesus, please don't build your life on a false sense of peace and security. And another thing I just want to say is this. You know, this is what's at stake when we talk about sharing the gospel with our neighbors and with our coworkers. It's people who have a false sense of peace and security, who are just like us in so many ways. Right? When somebody told us about Jesus and the Lord gave us new life, we want to take people the message of not a false sense of peace and security that just makes you feel better, but an actual sense of peace and security that you can have a relationship with the judge. This is what's at stake when we talk about telling people about the saving king, Jesus. But if you're waiting on the king, you won't be surprised when he shows up. Second thing I want to uh, that we need to keep in mind as we think about the end of the world, Jesus coming back. Number two, stay awake. Number two, stay awake. Now, I know some of y'all wanted me to say stay woke. <laughs> I feel like one of those youth pastors is trying to be cool. Isn't that what the kids are saying these days? Stay woke. <laughs> it's funny because it's not a word. Um, but y'all know this phrase. Uh, what does it mean when somebody's woke? Just somebody give me a quick Definition. What does it mean if somebody's woke? Aware. Good. Somebody's woke. That means they, they know what's going on, right? If somebody's sleep, it means they don't really know all the powers at work. So usually a lot of times people talk about being woke. They're talking about uh, injustices in the world, people being aware of these things, of, of power imbalances in our world. If you're woke, then you know what's going on. If not, you're still asleep. And at this point, uh, the phrase is a little overused. Uh, so it's cool until like tomorrow when like somebody grandmother, a politician says it, then it's over immediately. Like when Hillary Clinton dabbed, it was over. Um, and I was watching a show, uh, you know, just to demonstrate how it's overused and it's kind of drifted into everything. And, and the dude was like, I'm drinking breakfast in a cup. And his friend was like, you made that up. And he said, everything's made up. Stay woke. Right. It's just turned into anything. You don't know. <laughs> everything's made up. Stay woke. And you can you think about it. It's true. Uh, and so while this phrase is a little overused, and while also some people use it as this kind of self-righteous measure of whether you as woke as I am, and we judge each other's wokeness and decide I understand more than you do. You ain't woke, I'm woke. Did you know about this? You didn't. You sleep. You know, this kind of <laughs> foolishness. And you don't want to say you didn't know. You're like, I don't think that's true, but I don't want to say I didn't know because I'm woker than him. But uh, the thing I do like about the idea of being woke is it is possible to be completely unaware. It is possible to be so relaxed that you're basically asleep. And Paul is warning the Thessalonians of being too lax, of falling asleep, of being unaware, or at least living like those who have no idea and haven't trusted in the Lord Jesus coming back. Uh, let me read verse 4. So as opposed to those who won't be able to escape that destruction, he says this, but you brothers and sisters, are not in the dark for this day to surprise you like a thief. 
For you are all children of light and children of the day. We do not belong to the night or the darkness. So right away, Paul's making a strong contrast between us and everybody else. Right. So just like last week, he was saying, don't grieve like those who don't have hope because you do have hope. And he's saying, don't be surprised by the return of Jesus like those who have no hope, who haven't been hoping in him and waiting on him. And again, he's not saying we'll know exactly when it will be. He's saying we know it's coming. Uh, Almost like me when I'm waiting on uh, an Amazon package and I can't wait for it to get there. There's some things I need to deal with in my heart, but there's a special joy (laughs) of seeing an Amazon package. And a special depression when you realize it's for your wife and not you. But there's a special thing. When I know something's coming that I really want, all day I'm waiting on it. I'm looking out the window. I'm checking the track, and I'm unnecessarily opening my mailbox, even though the package can't even fit in there. There's just this thing where I'm waiting on it, right? And I know it's coming. I don't know exactly when it's coming, but I know it's coming. So I'm prepared, and I'm ready. And the fact that it's coming is shaping how I actually behave in that day. Right, there's sometimes when I want to go somewhere, but I'm like, I know people steal packages, so I'm going to stay home because I know that my package is coming. Okay. Uh, and so it changes the way I behave, right? My expectation, my waiting for something changes the way that I live my life. And Paul is saying, for those of us who know that Jesus is coming back and know the way this end of the world is happening, it should actually shape the way that we live our lives. Not that we know exactly when he's coming, but we know he's coming. And that shapes us. And he tells us why. He says, because we're not in the dark. He says, we're children of the light. We're children of the day. We don't belong to the night of darkness. Um, And, you know, he's using light and darkness as as metaphors. And we're familiar with the Bible using light and darkness in this way, using good and evil. Uh, The Bible says that God is light. And in him, there's no darkness. Scripture says, apart from God, we're darkened in our heart and in our understanding. Scripture says when we believe in Jesus, we're taken from the uh, kingdom of darkness to the kingdom of his marvelous light. I love that passage, that Jesus is actually like picking us up, taking us out of darkness and putting us in a new kingdom of his marvelous light. And so Paul's saying, you're children of the light now. There's been an identity change. And based on who you are now, there should be something different about how you live. Verse 6, he says, so then, let us not sleep like the rest, but let us stay awake and be self-controlled. Those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be self-controlled. Put on the armor of faith and love and a helmet of the hope of salvation. He's saying, let us not sleep like the rest. Because we belong to the day. You know, A lot of the times we spend so much of our energy doing our best to fit in. We want more than anything else for those around us, especially those who don't know Jesus around us, to come to the conclusion that we are exactly like them in every way they can imagine. We want to try not to stand out when instead the Bible is telling us that we should stand out. Not in some kind of self-righteous way, like, I just want to make sure y'all know I'm better than you. That's not what Scripture's talking about. But it's talking about now that we're children of the light, there should be things about us that are noticeably different. For example, uh, me and John got to go to Brazil and teach at this conference. And as we got there in the car, uh, a lady said to John, mind you, we're in Brazil, uh, not a lot of African-Americans in Brazil. And John, being a tall African-American, uh, they said, oh, what do you think that they've been uh, calling you Shaquille O'Neal? Is that funny? 
He's like, I didn't know they were calling me Shaquille O'Neal. He's like, yeah, they've been calling you Shaquille O'Neal all week. And uh, me and my wife thought it was hilarious. We laughed for several minutes, and John was doing one of those, like, <laughs> one of them joints where you don't look like you're not laughing, but it's not funny. Uh, but the reason, they, John looks so different than everybody else that they know. He stands out. He's taller than everybody else. He's darker than everybody else. He was more muscular than everybody else, and they're just like, tall black bald man, Shaquille O'Neal. That's the only <laughs> reference that they had, right? Uh, whereas... Other people who grew up in Brazil, same ethnic background, they don't stand out at all. John has no chance of just blending in with everybody else. He's head and shoulders above everybody else. Maybe I look different, but I'm so short they couldn't even see me. So I didn't stand out that much. Uh, Scripture is saying that now that we're children of the light, there should not be an ability of us to just kind of blend in like nothing's different. Especially when we're talking about things as different as darkness and light. Right. Um, to live as children of the light is to show a glimpse of who God is in all of his light in a world that looks nothing like him. Show people what it looks to look like God in a world that looks nothing like him or in a dark world to shine light, to be like him, to be like his character, to try to show mercy like him, to trust in him. One of my questions for you, if we're to be children of the light, and this is for everywhere we go, not just when we show up here on Sunday. Right, we're especially to be light in dark places. I wonder if there's anything that looks like you being a child of the light when you were at work. Maybe when you were at school. Is there anything about the way that you do your job that would suggest that you know the creator? Is there anything about the way that you work hard that says anything about you knowing the creator? Is there anything about the way you treat your coworkers? Is there anything about what you do with your eyes when people walk by? Is there anything about how you interact with others, how you talk about your boss behind their back? Uh, Whether or not you do the schoolwork you're supposed to do, is there anything about that that would suggest that you've been pulled into the kingdom of God's marvelous light? Paul is saying, we're children of the light. And that should be apparent. Verse 7, he says, for those who sleep, sleep at night. Those who get drunk, get drunk at night. He's just saying those are, you know, nighttime kind of activities, sleeping and drunkenness. Sleep happens in the dark. Drunkenness happens in the dark. And he's saying we're people of the day, so we shouldn't be doing nighttime things. So in the same way, if you see somebody drunk in the middle of the day, that seems especially strange. Like people usually do that at night. Or if you see somebody sleeping on the job, you're like, this is daytime. Right. The, uh, Paul is saying in the same way, we're people of the day, so we shouldn't be doing nighttime things. It should be just as strange as sleeping at your desk during the day. That doesn't match where you are. We're to live in the light, to walk in the light. We're, we're new people. We're a different kind of person. And part of that that he points out right away twice is self-control. He says, stay awake, be self-controlled. Then he says, let us be self-controlled. Um, real quick note on self-control. Some of us, you know, all of us have a little control freak in us. Some of us more than others. But we always want to focus on controlling things that the Bible hasn't even told us to control and ignoring the one thing the Bible has told us to control. Here's a, a list of some things you can't control. Your circumstances. You can't control your boss. You can't control your spouse. You can't control your natural disasters. You can't control how other people drive. You can't control your health. 
You can't control when you die. You can't control whether or not your favorite team makes good moves in the offseason. There's thing after thing after thing. You can't control all of this stuff. The only thing that the Bible tells you that you can control and commands you to control is yourself. You haven't been called to spouse control or circumstance control, but self-control. That's what the Bible has called you to. Self-control is exactly what it sounds like. Ourselves are not just supposed to be able to roam all wild. We're to train ourselves, to control ourselves. Our passions don't just lead us wherever we want them to. Now we're children of the light. We control them and we make intentional decisions. I have a puppy. His name is Jay. And uh, over the last six months, seven months that I've had this puppy, you know, I've been learning to control him more and more so that he doesn't go to the restroom in my house, so we don't jump up on my couch, so he doesn't try to eat our food. And as time goes on, I get better and better at controlling and training him. I understand if I don't, he'll do whatever he wants to. I have to make sure I assert my authority and my control. That's how it's supposed to happen. And in the same way, we ought to train ourselves. Sometimes we just think, this is just who I am. It is what it is. That's not how the Bible talks about it. The Bible doesn't just say you just are who you are. It is who it is. Anything that is anything about you, just let it roam free. There are some things that contradict what Jesus made you to be like. And if you're in Jesus, they contradict what Jesus remade you to be like. And so the Bible has called us to self-control. And that's one of the key things that shows that we're children of the light and not the darkness. A lack of self-control screams to the world, I'm exactly like you. When Jesus wants us to scream to the world, hey, I'm one of a new race of people. I'm a citizen of a different realm. I'm from the future. You understand? We're citizens of heaven, where God is. Right? Our home is the new heavens and the new earth. We're from the future. You ever seen a movie um, where, like, people from the future come visit? And they always look weird. I don't know why people think we're going to wear metal in the future. But they always got, like, some metal on uh, and people can tell it from the future because they dress weird, because they talk weird, and they know stuff that nobody else would know. And in the same way as believers, children of the light, we are, though we haven't traveled to the future, we know the one who is, and that's where we belong, and part of our realities are there, so we should talk different than everybody else. There's even some ways we should dress different than everybody else. There's even some things that we know about the future that God has revealed to us that shape the way that we live. So while some people may make decisions, you see in movies, people come from the future like, don't do that, it does ABC. We have a God who's spoken to us about what's going to happen in the future and has told us to live our lives now in light of those things. We should, there should be a strange standout about us, understanding that we belong in a different place. Since we belong to today, let us be self-controlled, put on the armor of faith and love and the helmet of the hope and salvation. There is faith, hope, and love once again, right? Those, those virtues that ground us, that honor Jesus. Faith in Jesus, hope in Jesus, love of Jesus and one another. And here's one of the things I find interesting is he's telling us to stay awake here. Um, we can be obsessed with getting ready for other parts of our future and not spend any time getting ready for our future to be with Jesus forever. Often when we're college students, we can obsess about our future as graduates. And when we're singles, we can obsess and try to get ready for our future marriage. Or, you know, if we're newly married, maybe that's kids, right? Um, if 
You know, if we got older kids, maybe it's for our kids to get out the house. If we're unemployed, uh, employment. But I want to say this. There's no magic future that you should be building your entire life around other than the return of Jesus. You know, we think like there's some point where we're going to, if we can just get this thing, then everything will be right. That's not true of anything except the thing you should be building your life around, the return of Jesus, when he will actually make all things right. So when we think, if I just could get a, get a promotion, then that would fix all of my problems. That won't. Right, so it's fine to work towards that promotion, but we should be thinking primarily, right, about how the fact that Jesus is coming back leads us to work in that job even now, not expecting that a promotion will fix all of our problems. Jesus will fix all of our problems. All right, so we get to get ready for his return while trusting him. And he's going to tell us a little bit about what that readiness looks like. If you're waiting for the king, you won't be surprised when he shows up. Last thing, we'll close with. Number three, don't be afraid. Right? Don't be afraid. Um, Earlier this year, now, if you haven't seen this movie, I'm sorry. You may want to plug your ears, but there was this uh, horror comedy that came out called Get Out. So, uh, to the immediate joy of all brown people everywhere, this movie comes out. And at the end of the movie, so I'm about to ruin the end of the movie. If you haven't seen this movie, plug ears. Uh, if you don't care, you can still listen. But what happens is, um, you know, him and the, and the girl that's trying to kill him, they're on the ground. She's trying to kill him. He's trying to defend himself. And then she finds a way to, like, fake like she's injured. And he looks up and a police officer uh, rolls up, right? So everybody in the theater, he already had some weird running with the cops at the beginning. So everybody in the theater is like, oh, I thought he was about to get out, Right? <laughs> And then the door opens, and it's his home, and he steps out. It's like, oh, I knew he was looking out. And he, and he shows up. And what you realize is they did this incredible job of grabbing a hold of your emotions where you knew somebody had arrived, right, and you were afraid for what they were going to do to the main character until you realized it was someone else entirely. So my question is, why is it that when a car shows up, We could either have a lot of joy or we could really be afraid. What changes how you feel about someone arriving? The way you feel about somebody's arrival depends not only on who they are, but also what kind of relationship you have with them. So when they showed up, you thought he had a strange relationship with the cows. I don't think this is going to go that well. But when you realize it was his friend, it said this is the kind of person who's going to look out for him, who's going to rescue him, who's going to deliver him. How we feel when Jesus arrives. Whether we're afraid to be judged or whether we're excited to be rescued depends on our relationship with that judge. Are you part of Jesus' team or are you one of those that oppose him? Verse 9, how should God's people feel when Jesus shows up? He says, for God did not appoint us to wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we may live together with him. Let's stop there. It's really good news that those who know Jesus don't have to wonder what's going to happen when he comes back. We don't have to wonder, right? He's already decided. He's already decreed it. He's already announced it. He's already appointed us to an end. There's no cliffhangers for the end of our story. Now, there are two potential outcomes, salvation or wrath, destruction or rescue, and we, the people of God, will be rescued. We will be saved. We will be delivered, not because we're better, but because Jesus is a great Savior, and he drew us 
to himself. But here's the thing, it's not just exclusive to one kind of person or the people who already know Jesus right this moment. Anybody who would trust in Jesus can welcome Jesus as their hero instead of fearing Jesus as their enemy. Instead of fearing Jesus as their judge, we can receive salvation by trusting in Jesus. Incredible thing is, the first time God broke into human history, the first time Jesus came as a man in human flesh, he didn't come as a judge, right? He came not to condemn, but to lay his life down and to save. So this is an incredible thing where the first time he comes, he provides the forgiveness for the sins that we would be judged for when he comes the second time. How gracious of Jesus to come and wipe our slates clean for us before he comes back. How gracious of Jesus not only to come and to die and to resurrect, but to come back to get his people. Jesus is incredibly gracious. The day of the Lord is something to be excited about, something to rejoice in, something to look forward to. Even the judgment of God is something that we should desire. And here's why. When something unjust happens, all of us understands this is wrong and someone should do something about it. When someone gets off for something that they did wrong, we think that's not right. There should have been justice in this situation. Right? It is a good thing. You know, sometimes we wonder, there's so much suffering and hurt and pain in this world. I wonder if God even cares. Why isn't he doing anything about it? Well, I want you to know, it's clear in Scripture, God does care, and he cares more than we do. You know the small, minuscule picture of the suffering and pain and injustice in our world that we see? As finite people, we don't know everything. We don't know nothing. God knows everything, and he sees all of it, not just right now, through all of human history. Not only does God care, he pays close attention, and... He has a plan for how he's going to make all things right. That is something to rejoice in. Perfect justice. But here's the thing. We only like justice when it's carried out against somebody else. None of us like justice when we're the ones who've committed a crime and deserve justice for it. Yeah, the scripture says when Jesus comes back, we're either going to obtain salvation or we're going to obtain wrath punishment for the ways we've sinned against God. And here's the thing, you know, we don't like justice when it's against us, but we've made ourselves God's enemies. This isn't, you know, we're the ones who've opposed God. We're the ones who've rebelled against God. We're the ones who strayed from God. We're the ones who knew what God wanted us to do and kept doing the opposite, even as God warned us, even as God offered his salvation. And here's the thing, Jesus is offering us salvation even now. Uh, there's this song this guy has, and he says, Seek him now, you can know him as Savior. Seek him later, you'll know him as Judge. You can seek Jesus now, know him as Savior, as Hero, as Rescuer. Or it's possible that the return of Jesus will sneak up on you like a thief in the night. If you're here, you're not really sure if you know Jesus. I, my greatest desire, I don't care if you join this church, my greatest desire is that if Jesus were to come back, you can welcome him with joy as your hero. And any of us can know Jesus, even right now. You don't have to walk up to this altar, right? You don't have to do any special body movements. 
the way that you can know Jesus, have a relationship with him even now, is trust him. Let go of your sin and trust him. Stop trying to earn your way to God and trust him. Believe in him. He's gracious. If you want to know more about what it means to know Jesus, what it meant for Jesus to die, what it meant for him to rise, two things I encourage you to do. One, listen to the baptismal testimonies. People are going to be talking about how Jesus saved them from their sins. I love hearing people share their testimonies. It's a reminder. God does what he said he would do. He saves sinners in all kinds of situations. He saves sinners and he's so good. So I'd encourage you to listen to those testimonies and also if you, if you just have questions what it means to know, come talk to me or John and people at the door. We'd love to talk to you about what it means to know Jesus. If you're waiting for the king, you're not surprised when he shows up. And when he talks about us being, getting to obtain salvation through Jesus and we get to be together with him. We get to be with Jesus forever. That's the main goal of this salvation. We get to be with Jesus. Um, I have a little bit more. I'm going to save till next week. We got the last section. Uh, and he's going to talk about how we should live in the meantime with each other, encouraging each other, building each other up. But I'll, I'll, I'll close by, by saying this. As we think about the end of the world. We think about Jesus coming back these day of the Lord passages are frightening. Especially read these Old Testament passages, they are very scary. Yet it's something that we can look forward to if we know Christ. And here's the thing for believers. This is part of the thing that's invincible about followers of Jesus. Even the end of the world isn't the end of the world for us. Because even when the end of the world comes, the Lord Jesus has come to rescue us. And that's really good news. And at that point, what really can we fear? And even death can't separate us from the one who loves us. Let's pray. Father, we come before you in Jesus' name. God, we thank you for, for sending your son. We thank you for salvation. We thank you for warning us of coming judgment. And we thank you, Father, that you sent Jesus the first time to live the perfect life, Father, and to uh, die for our sins, to raise from the grave. Uh, Father, we can look forward to the day of the Lord with joy and anticipation, knowing that your justice is perfect and knowing that you're not just going to just burn this world up and get rid of it, Father, but you're going to make it new, Father, new heavens and a new earth. And we cannot wait to dwell on the new heavens and new earth with you forever. We want to be with you. And so, Father, we pray that even as we reflect on that, God, that you would give us the joy and comfort of knowing the assurance that you paid for our sins. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.